Acts chapter 18, verse 1, says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Parentheses says, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. That's Luke telling us why Priscilla and Aquila had left Rome and come to Corinth. And he came to them, Paul came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. We've been tracking the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts, and maybe sometimes you show up and go, it feels more like we're tracking Paul in the book of Acts than the Holy Spirit. But remember, Acts chapter 9, Paul is a man filled with the Spirit. So when we talk about Paul and what he's doing, we talk about the Spirit of God doing it through him, same as our lives. The Spirit of God is the operating power in the life of the Apostle Paul to do the things that he's doing. So recognize that even though we're not saying, well, the Holy Spirit did this and the Holy Spirit did that, we recognize that the Holy Spirit is working, but just through the Apostle Paul, the same way he works through you and I. He's been sharing the gospel through ancient Greece, meeting with a lot of opposition, meeting with a lot of difficulty. He's just come from Athens to this little place called the Isthmus of Corinth. It's that little tiny stretch of land that connects the Peloponnese. It's almost like a little island. If it weren't for that little strip of land, it'd be an island with the mainland of Greece, which is where Athens was. And so that's where Paul went, about a 50-mile walk. So it took him a few days, and he makes his way over that little tiny land bridge to Corinth. Now, Athens, if you remember from last week, was sort of the intellectual center of ancient Greece. You know, Socrates and Plato and the Epicureans and the Stoics and all the philosophers and the love of wisdom, all that was there. And I didn't mention it last week, but as we talk about intellectualism in our society, in our day and age, and we think about the intellectual and the academic institutions, of course, we think Harvard and Yale and Stanford and these big names. And I think we fail to remember that those institutions that now are hotbeds of what we would call liberalism started out as seminaries. Did you know that? Harvard, Yale were founded for the expediting of the gospel and the teaching and training of men to learn the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be taught in the scriptures. And now those educational institutions have departed from that. It's now godless in its portrayal of wisdom. And we know the Bible says that you can't even begin to be wise in your life without the fear of God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there's a lot of wisdom, but if it doesn't begin with the Lord, it's not real wisdom. So Paul leaves. He's not chased out of town. He's not imprisoned. He's not beaten. None of those things happen in Athens. He just leaves. He meets with, you know, some academic opposition and he leaves without much explanation, and he heads to Corinth. Now, if Athens was the intellectual center of the ancient world, Corinth, which is the capital, is the indulgence center of the ancient world. We've got about 650,000 people living in Corinth at the time of Paul. 400,000 of them are slaves, and Paul rolls into Corinth, which again is set right there in that unique location to have two port, not one port city, but two port cities, one on the right side 
and then the other on the left side. So what would happen is if you were traveling east to west or west-east from Rome to Asia or Asia to Rome, and you were bringing goods and wares to, to trade and to buy and to sell, you'd go right through Corinth because it was a lot shorter to go through Corinth than to go around that big island. How many of you like to take a shortcut when you're driving somewhere if one exists? We're going to go for the shorter route. Well, the problem is, is how do you get through there? I mean, it's a landmass. So what they did is if you were in a big ship, they would unload all the cargo and then carry that cargo the three miles. That's how wide that strip of land is in real life. Uh, now there's actually a canal there, I believe, uh, in current day. But then they would carry the cargo across that little three-mile strip, put it on a boat on the other side, and continue on the journey. But if your ship was small enough, they'd actually pick the ship up out of the water, put it on wheels on a rail, and carry that and ride that ship three miles across and put it in the water on the other side. So you can imagine Corinth was this this major metropolitan city of, I mean, people that have been on ships traveling here and there. When they get off that ship, they're ready to eat. They're ready to party. They're ready to let down their hair. And Corinth was the place that they would do that. How many of you have ever been to Las Vegas? And so some hands going up. Some not want to admit it. I'm sort of, ah, yeah. Uh, Man, the first time I went to Las Vegas, it was a culture shock. I went there. There's a Calvary Chapel in uh, near Las Vegas. And I went there for an inductive Bible study course. And in our evenings, we would go down to the strip in Las Vegas and hand out tracts. And people were handing us tracts, but they weren't about Jesus. These tracts were about offers for where we could go and find some fun time at night and uh, that kind of thing. But that's exactly what Corinth was like. They had a triple A in Corinth, not the car, you know, care place, but the idol's temples. Number one was Aphrodite. The main temple of Aphrodite was there. And they had in that temple a thousand temple prostitutes, according to ancient records. Thousand temple prostitutes. So to worship Aphrodite, the goddess of love, you would then solicit the services of a temple prostitute, which of course, you know, was, it was a very dangerous place to be in that time because there was temptation everywhere. And that the prostitutes paid taxes, a very wealthy city on a number of levels. So a thousand temple prostitutes existed. But then there's the second A, which is Apollo. The temple of Apollo was prominent in ancient Corinth. And Apollo had young men that would also offer services, sexual services to people coming and going, both male and female. So remember when Paul writes the book of Romans, he writes it from Corinth. He spends longer in Corinth than he does anywhere else. He's there at least 18 months, which usually he's there for a few weeks or you know, a little while, a couple months, and then he moves on. He's in Corinth for 18 months. And so from there, he writes to the Romans, and he writes to them about sexual immorality, about having a debased mind. Chapter 1 is all about idolatry and sexual immorality, men with men, women with women. Where do you think he's getting that? He's seeing that all right before his eyes. He looks out his window, and that's what he sees every night happening in Corinth. And now the challenge with the Corinthian church, we have these two huge letters that Paul writes to the Corinthians later on. He's a difficult relationship with them. All of that indulgence, all that immorality, now they get saved, the church is planted there, but it still tends to infuse itself in the church. And so he has to write to them to flee from idolatry. He has to write to them to say, 
No, your body is not for sexual morality. You don't join your body to a harlot because your bodies, they had a saying that, well, the body's for sex. So, you know, we want to use the body for what it's for. They had their justification just like we do. And Paul said, no, no, no. The body is not for sexual immorality. The body is for the Lord. They were indulgent at their agape meals. They were getting drunk and they were overeating and overindulging. And that was just their culture. You know, every city kind of has its flavor. And Las Vegas, much like ancient Corinth, is a place you go to overindulge in immorality and other things. That's what it's famous for. That's what Corinth was famous for. If you were a Corinthian girl, that was synonymous for being a prostitute. If you went out last night and acted like a Corinthian, maybe you wake up hungover and you say to your friend from your fraternity or whatever, say, oh yeah, you would say, we acted like Corinthians last night, which means we were sexually immoral. That was their word. Those terms were coined back in that time because immorality of a sexual nature and indulgent nature was synonymous with being from Corinth. So that gives you a little idea of what the Apostle Paul walked into as he came into Corinth. I imagine a very shocking, a culturally shocking kind of place. So there is a little bit of a reprieve for him there. Verse 2 tells us he found these two people, this wonderful couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They had come from Italy. Evidently, they had already been Christians. The gospel had already made its way to Rome after Pentecost. But they get kicked out of Rome History tells us that there were some riots that the Roman Caesars got really upset with, and so they kicked out a bunch of Jews, anti-Semitism already. But the interesting thing about what history tells us is the Jewish riots were connected to someone named Crestus. This is what the historians tell us. Now, what many people believe is that it was written 70 years after this happened, and that there was maybe a little transposition of letters, and instead of meaning Crestus, what they meant to write was Christos, and that actually these riots had to do with Christ. Don't know for sure, but many suggest that that's likely the situation. So because of discrepancies between Jew and Gentile with Christ and Jews getting saved, and you've seen all the issues that Paul runs into, that because of that, they just kicked out all the Jews at that time. So Priscilla and Aquila make their way to Corinth, and they begin to do their work. What do they do? They're tent makers. They work with leather. They work with special types of cloth used to make tents. So as Paul is in the marketplace, his jaw hanging out as he sees the lewdness and the uncleanness and the sinfulness of the city, he comes across a little booth where these people are taking orders for making tents. You know, Tents Are Us was their business name. And uh, so Paul had a trade. Maybe you've heard it. You know, some people might say, well, uh, that's my tent making trade. So sometimes people, pastors, can't afford to be in full-time ministry. Their church is small. And so they would say, well, I'm tent making. And that's a term that means to say, I support myself through another business. When I was just starting in ministry, Calvary Chapel was very small. I was uh, working with horses and so was able to support myself. And I think it's a great model for young people going into ministry to also have a trade. So Paul didn't have to rely on the church for supporting him. The church did support him at times, but Paul made it a point to say, even though he could get money from the church, he often worked. In the book of Acts, he tells the people in in Ephesus, he says, I showed you by laboring day and night with my own hands how important it is to care for the poor. So Paul would say work 
gives me the opportunity to give to others who have need and to support my own self. And Paul would say his ministry habit. For me, working with horses became a way to support my ministry habit. And it was great to be able to do that until the church was bigger and I had two jobs and eventually I had to transfer out of working with horses and into full-time ministry because the needs were greater. But the great thing is for me in my life, if money got tighter around here, I can always go back to the trade that I have. And so Paul says, even Jesus told him, and even Jesus said that it's much better to give than to receive. And that's why working is such an important thing in our lives because working gives you the ability to help other people. And that's really good for your soul. Matter of fact, Jesus says it's much better to give than to receive because oftentimes we live like it's much better to receive. But you find as they do studies, you know, the world always catches up with the Bible eventually. People think that by having and getting, they're going to be happy. The more I get, the happier I'll be. Does that really, has it ever led anybody to happiness? It really doesn't. And statistically now they can prove that. But you know what does contribute to happiness? Once all of your basic needs are met, food, shelter, clothing, nothing else brings you any increase in happiness. No matter how many phones you have, the latest phone, the latest device, latest thing, clothes, none of that stuff really leads to any happiness. What really does lead to an improved quality of life is being generous. The more they study this stuff, the more they see it. Jesus was right. Imagine that. They found out Jesus was right, that it is much better to give than to receive. Those are the happier people. The people that report personal happiness are those that tend to be more generous. And Paul tells this to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians. Paul says to the Thessalonians, if a person doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And I'm all for the grace of God, but sometimes people take advantage of the grace of God, don't they? So people see, they know that we're supposed to be generous because we're Christians and Jesus was generous. So then people will take advantage of us personally or of us as a church and say, well, I'm not going to contribute anything. I'm just going to come and take. And we'll give and we do give. You're just cheating yourself if you don't find a place and a way to give back. But Paul said to them, don't buy that line that they have nothing to contribute. If they're lazy and they're not willing to contribute, not willing to work when they could, then Paul says, don't be an enabler in that way. If they don't want to work, if they won't contribute, then they shouldn't eat. I think that's a good model for the church, isn't it? I think in any successful, healthy family, everybody has something they can contribute. God's made it. God's gifted everybody in the body of Christ. He's given you something so that you can give. And he runs through those in various places in the Bible. The gifts of the Spirit are so that you don't have to just be a freeloader in the body of Christ because that's not good for your soul. That's not good for your psyche. It's not healthy for you or for us. So the cool thing is about it is in a family, if your son, if your teenage son came home, refused to get a job, propped his feet up on the couch, turned on the TV and expected you to bring him food all the time and you said, hey, would you mind taking out the trash? And he said, no, get out of the way. I'm not taking out the trash. No, how long would you tolerate that? Some of you go, I'm still tolerating it right now, right? <laughs> yeah, you're describing my house. Uh, but even if that's what exists at your house, we recognize it's wrong, right? It's wrong. So Paul, he stayed with Priscilla and Aquila. They invited him to stay with them, and they worked together. And working together, let me say this one more thing to you, church. When you work with people, it really brings you close to them. So finding a place to serve, one little thing in the body of Christ, it can be let those who are gifted with giving, give liberally. 
Let those who are gifted with administrating, administrate. With teaching, teach. With mercy, be merciful. Whatever it is God's given you, use it to benefit the body of Christ because there's so much you get when you come because other people are using their gifts. So Paul, by working with Priscilla and Aquila, developed a really, really close relationship with them. Matter of fact, he says of them that they risked their own lives for him. And some of you are going, well, I just, I have a hard time connecting at church. You know, Calvary's so big and I'm so introverted. And, and so therefore I'm just not connected. Can I tell you, encourage you, find somewhere to work. Like work alongside of somebody else. And pretty soon they'll become friends with you. You know, serve back in the children's ministry. Find some little thing going on that you can help with cleaning the church or working on the greeting team or doing something. And all of a sudden, you'll find yourself really connecting with people. And Paul connected with Priscilla and Aquila. How? Because they work together. And they'll come up over and over. They become traveling companions and so on. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. When we first started this church, our nickname was Cowboy Chapel. How many of you were around during those days? Some of you remember when we were called Cowboy Chapel, because I worked with horses and I met other people that worked with horses. And so we would talk about the Lord and I'd invite them to this Bible study I was teaching. And pretty soon the church planted with a lot of people that were involved in the horse industry. Can I ask you a question? When's the last time you were able to talk to someone you work with about the Lord and invite them to church or invite them to know Jesus? And maybe it's a church in Charlottesville or whatever. It doesn't have to be this church, but just using your workplace as a place to share your faith. Now, but, 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 but the boss, but I'm not supposed to, but you know what? You'd be discerning about that. Don't take up work time, like spend an hour by the water cooler when you're supposed to be working. You know, that's taking advantage. But on your lunch break, coming and going in the parking lot, uh, at a meeting, you know, there's a great way to, it's a great opportunity to share your faith with people. Just talk to them, striking up conversations. Because look what Paul did. During the week, they're making tents. People are coming by, they're placing orders. But look at verse four, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now, I like that. Why? Because I'll bet he worked six days a week really hard. He talks about how hard he worked. Day and night, he said he worked so that he didn't have to need anybody else to provide for him. Day and night, he worked so he could support the poor. And then Saturday came around the Sabbath day, and he said, this is my day of rest. I'm sleeping in. This is me time. Paul didn't know what me time was. Every time was Jesus time. And so when his day off rolled around, what was he doing? He was serving. He was working. Where is he? He's at church. He's in the synagogue doing what? He's reasoning. He's dialoguing. And he's persuading people. Our whole world revolves around persuasion. Look at Washington, D.C., Democrats want to persuade the Republicans. Republicans want to persuade the Democrats. The lobbyists want to persuade everybody. Look at TV and media, marketing. This company wants to persuade you that you need one of theirs. That company wants to persuade you that theirs is better than theirs. And everybody wants to persuade you about their product or their thing. And maybe some of you are, you know, you remember the Tupperware party days and now it's essential oils. And for a while it was Juice Plus. And there was a family in our church that had gotten real into Juice Plus vitamins and She had had some health issues and got a hold of these Juice Plus vitamins and was taking them and really felt a lot better. And so guess what she began to do? Tell other people. 
And pretty soon she's a representative for Juice Plus, and now she's having Juice Plus parties at her house and inviting people over. Why? To persuade them that these are really great vitamins and they're good for your health and you need them because they've been a benefit to me. What if we were like that about Jesus? What if, like, you got a hold of some Jesus in your life, and pretty soon you saw Jesus making an impact in your life, and then you became a representative for Jesus, and you began to tell other people that they needed Jesus, and you began to persuade people about Jesus? That's what Paul did. Because whatever the thing is that you're into, there's a thing. There's a thing in your life. you got a thing, and that thing's the thing you talk about to other people, and you're trying to persuade them. It's a really cool thing. It's going to the gym. It's this thing. It's that thing. Because you're persuaded, that's why you're persuasive. The challenge is with Christians is I'm not sure we're persuaded. I think Paul was so persuasive because he was so persuaded. I think because he was fully convinced. And to persuade means to bring over by talking. When I first read this chapter last week, Sunday, I go home, you guys take a nap, I pick up chapter 18 or chapter nine. I do whatever else. I want to read already the next chapter that I'm teaching on because I just begin to pray over it. Lord, what do you, what's this next chapter here for? What are you trying to say? And I read chapter 18 and my first thought, no kidding, was this is a really boring chapter. <laughs> so I said, oh, you've never said that when you read the Bible. <laughs> Pastors say that too. I said, this is a really boring chapter. What am I going to talk about? You're like, I don't know what's in here because he's just, you know, we've just been over this the last three weeks. He's persuading people. He's reasoning in the synagogues. I'm like, man, why so much of this? And the Lord convicted me about that. And the more time I spent, there's some really cool stuff in this chapter. But here he is again, persuading and reasoning. And I realized that the book of Acts covers a 30-year period. And so there's just snippets and remnants of things that happened that are meant for us to know. Not everything that happened is recorded, but I read the chapter and I go, oh, you know, nobody's getting thrown in prison as if that's, a, you know, we need some excitement. You know, it's like an action adventure movie. Like if it's boring, I don't want to watch it. The Bible's like that. If it's boring, we don't want to read it. But isn't that how most of our lives are? And really our lives are pretty boring. There's not demons getting cast out every day. There's not miracles happening every day. And sometimes we have this false perception that that's how life is. But the first thing that I got out of this chapter was, you know, most of our lives are lived in the mundane. We get up, we have breakfast, we watch the news, we go to work, we come home, we repeat it the next day. No miracles, no huge shining light revelation. None of these things are happening. But most of our lives are lived in the meeting people, dialoguing with them, and persuading them to believe in Jesus. That's our lives. That's our Christian life. Being persuaded ourselves, learning and growing, living that out, and persuading other people. And that's what Paul did every Sabbath, not two Sabbaths a month, not one Sabbath a month. You know, a lot of people that come to Calvary Chapel, maybe once a month, maybe twice a month. I'm just saying, Paul, it says right there, I'm not making this up. It says he went in, how many Sabbaths? Every Sabbath. It was really important to him to be there. He didn't necessarily go for himself. He went for what he could contribute to others. I think that's a great reason to come to church. You get something, you give something. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, remember Paul had left them in Berea, and now he'd come to Athens. He got out of there real fast. Silas and Timothy show up in Athens, and they're like, hey, where's Paul? And he finds some people there, and they say, oh, Paul went over to uh, 50 miles over to Corinth. So they finally catch up with Paul in Corinth, and when they come, 
It says Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So evidently, they bring him money from the Philippians to support him. He can quit his day job and spend more time in ministry. And he's just really trying to convince people and talking to them about Jesus, the Jews especially. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook its garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So here we go. It's happening again. We know the track record. Paul begins to share about Jesus. Some believe there's opposition. He gets chased out of town. He gets beaten. He gets arrested. He gets stones thrown at him. So here he is in Corinth. And now it's beginning again. Now, I don't know what you would do in your heart if this was what your life was like. You think you got it tough. Paul's resume is, I was shipwrecked. I was starving. I was stoned. Three times I was beaten. You know, and you think you got it tough. So they oppose him. And look what he says to them. He shakes off his garments and he says, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. That's an idiom that wasn't literal blood. Usually we say the blood is on your hands, meaning that when you murder somebody, their blood gets on you. Their guilt is on you. So same thing, their blood be upon your heads means your consciousness. If you murder someone or hurt someone, the consciousness of that is on your head. You have to think about that, deal with the guilt of that. So he says to them, I've shared with you the gospel. If you reject it, your own blood is on your head. You're responsible for what happens. We live in the era of, I don't want to take responsibility for anything. Everything is somebody else's fault. Paul doesn't let him play that game. He says, I've done my job. I've told you the truth. Now what you do with that is on your head. And isn't that a great truth for this Sunday morning? You've heard, if you choose to reject that, then you can't blame your parents. You can't blame the government. You can't blame society. You can't blame this. You can't blame that. Because Jesus Christ, all of the promises of God, look, not some, not a few, all of the promises of God are in Christ, yes and amen. And if you reject that, I got nothing else for you. And you can't blame, well, the church did this and the church, no, 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 it's not about the church. It's not about, it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And if a person chooses to reject that, then that's your choice. And you make that choice. Paul says, as for me, I'm clean. Meaning my conscience is clear. I don't know who it is you work with. I don't know who it is in your family. They need to hear. And you've been hesitant to tell them. You've been shy about it. I want to have a clean conscience when I go to bed at night. I want to have discharged my responsibility to a general Jesus. Say, Jesus, I've done what you asked me to do. I've begged people to be saved. I've bent over backwards. I met a guy at the gym just the other day. We begin to talk. I'm sharing with him about church. I'm sharing with him about Jesus. And we're just talking. I'm asking him questions. And I said, you know, maybe you could think about, you know, bringing your family to church one Sunday. And he's like, well, you know, we, we like to do outdoor stuff on the weekends. And, you know, we like to go hiking and camping. And I was like, hey, okay. You know, I was like, I've invited you. I've told you. Then other people that I know kind of are on the edge. And I will labor and burden and chase and text and email and beg people to be saved, to just come and hear from the Lord and give your life. But there's always an excuse here, an excuse there. And, you know... And you just go, oh, I've done all I can. I've done, do you know someone like that in your life that you've done all you can? And Paul says to them, I'm moving on to someone who will receive it. And sometimes, folks, you share, you bend over backwards, but eventually 
they make their decision and you can't change that. And so you move on. You move on to someone that will. And so Paul says, I'm moving on to the Gentiles. And he departed from there, verse 7, and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So Paul leaves the synagogue and says, hmm, I need a place to start Bible study. Uh, how about right next door to the synagogue? So people are showing up for synagogue, and Paul's got a sign out that says, Bible study tonight, free food, you know? And people are going, huh. Ah. <laughs> he didn't set up across town because he didn't want to offend anybody. He's right next door to the synagogue. I love that. And it works. Look at verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So the guy who's the ruler of the synagogue, his job was not to teach. He wasn't a rabbi. He was in charge of taking care of the synagogue. He would make sure the lights were on, the doors were open, the temperature was set just right. Of course, they didn't have that. But you know the idea. He cared for the facility. He would make sure the, the scrolls were there. And he hears what Paul's saying, and he gets saved. And he starts to go next door. Now everybody else is walking. They're like, hey, Chris, where are you going? You know, like synagogue's over here. He's like, actually, I'm a believer in Jesus now. And so he goes that way. And they're like, a believer in what? You're believing that stuff? Yeah, and here's why. And so he begins to share with other people, and look what happens. Pretty soon, many of the Corinthians, hearing, they believed. And we're baptized. I said, Lord, this is a boring chapter. Then I realized there's an enlightenment, there's an awakening in Corinth. Huge, a church of possibly hundreds of people is there in Corinth now. That's exciting. I mean, one person getting saved is exciting. It's an exciting chapter, especially when that person gets saved out of a culture that is deeply trenched in sexual immorality. Because we know that sexual immorality Whatever way you want to put that, adultery, homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, we know it just leads to emptiness. We know it just leads to brokenness. It never satisfies. It never fulfills because what people are looking for, it's that curiosity. And the curiosity wears off and then you're left with emptiness. And so there's a chasing of the wind, so to speak, of this next encounter, this next sexual thing, this next deviance is going to somehow make me satisfied. And that's why sexual morality, pornography or whatever, that's why it's so difficult because the craving, once it's temporarily satisfied, it grows and then you need something else. That's why addiction is so difficult. And so to see a person get saved out of that, oh, it's glorious, isn't it, church? And so I'm so pumped. Now, this church really struggled with those things, as we mentioned, but we see some seeds happening. Verse 9, now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Now, I don't think Jesus wastes words, do you? Now, in my Bible, those are in red. Paul says, at night, by a vision, sort of a dream, he heard Jesus speak to him. And Jesus said to Paul, do not be afraid. Now, do you think that means Paul was afraid? I think it does. I think we see Paul as this awesome missionary who never struggles with fear and never struggles with doubt and never gets discouraged. And here we see God stepping in as Paul now, the opposition begins. And I wonder if Paul in his heart goes, here we go again. I mean, what's it going to be this time? Like, I don't know if my body can endure this anymore, Lord. I don't know if I got enough energy for this. I don't know if I can do this again. What's going to happen to me now? Do you ever get that way, Christian? You just feel weak? 
Well, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, and he says, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Remember, having just come from Athens, I was with you, Paul says, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So when Paul preached in Corinth, it wasn't in his human capacity. It wasn't because he was so tough and strong and able and persistent. Is because the Spirit of God was working in him, giving him strength where he was weakness, giving him courage where he was afraid. You see, sometimes we feel like courageous is never being afraid. Actually, it's different, isn't it? Don't, wouldn't we think, think military. The person who's courageous is the person that knows it could cost them their life, that fears that, and yet goes forward anyway. That's courage. Courage is not never fearing. It's not letting your fears paralyze you from doing what you know you have to do. We need some more courageous Christians, don't we? I'll be the first to admit that there's fear. You know why I sit on a stool when I preach? It's not because I'm tired and I don't like to stand up. It's because when I first started preaching, like I am deathly afraid of public speaking. And so when I would stand up, my knees would go up and down so much that they would vibrate up and down. Everybody could see my pants like moving. So I sat down so people wouldn't see my knees shaking when I spoke. It's a true story. So I sat down. I still sit down. I'm still scared. You know, anytime you're sharing the word of God with people. And so Paul says, Paul needs encouragement. And God was there to encourage him. He says, don't be afraid. Don't make, it's literally reflexive. It's don't make yourself afraid. Because that's how fear comes, isn't it, church? You make yourself afraid. You're Caught up in what-if land. You ever been to what-if lands? What if I go to church and this happens? Or what if I do that and that happens? Or what if I say it at work and that happens? God will take care of it. You know, you get caught up into what-ifs. You make yourself afraid before anything actually ever happens. You're already defeating yourself by fear. It's the opposite of faith. So Paul getting into the what-ifs, and God says, look, don't be afraid. Speak. Keep speaking. And don't be silent. Why? For I'm with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear not. Why? For you are with me. So that's what Jesus says to him. Look, I'm with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Paul, I got work to do here, and I need you to do it, and I'm going to give you an oasis here of freedom from being persecuted here. So watch what happens. He continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them, not being attacked. So one more example, and then we'll finish. Verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the guy in charge, Achaia is the region where Corinth is. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now church, we know where that usually leads, right? That usually leads to being beaten or imprisoned or run out of town. Watch. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio, this proconsul, said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. 
So Paul goes, ah, and Gallio steps in and says, get out of here. I don't want to hear this nonsense. Go away and figure it out yourselves. So Paul's like, well, I guess Jesus meant it. So Jesus said it, and then Jesus proved it to him. Jesus protected him for this 18-month period. He said, Paul, I see where you are. I see you're tired. I see you're just in, in a place of fear. And you know what? Aren't you glad for those times when the grace of God gives you that break? Last year, I had a tough year last year. Last year was like ah, slugging it out in a number of ways, number of situations, just kind of, and I was tired, you know? And this year, the Lord has just given this great blessing on the church and there's a lot of peace and just wonderful. And I'm so thankful for those times because you know, trials are coming, right? There'll be other things Paul's gonna face that are coming down the line, shipwreck and some other things, bitten by a snake, you know, the normal things we all face. But for this season of his life, God says, I'm going to give you a little sabbatical, a little rest. Now watch what happens. Verse 17, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Sosthenes, after Crispus gets saved, evidently Sosthenes becomes the ruler of the synagogue. And it's probably him that mounts this, this opposition to Paul. And he says, hey, guys, Paul's really messing things up. Let's take him to the proconsul and get him in trouble so he'll leave everybody alone and people won't get saved. And so they say, oh, that's a great idea, Sosthenes. And they all go. It gets thrown out. They all look bad. And they blame Sosthenes. So they whoop up on him. As one commentator said, this is a truly an example of hitting the sauce. <laughs> I know that's bad. But Sosthenes, interestingly, after he takes this beating, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians opens like this. A Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. He gets beat up by his own and he says, I'm out of here. I'm going to be a Christian. At least I'm getting beat up for something, you know, for talking about Jesus if I do that. So evidently he gets beat up. He gets saved. Paul befriends him. And now he's helping Paul write the letter to the Corinthians. Cool stuff, huh? In the Bible. God is so faithful, isn't he, folks? I just pray that God would give you a heart. You're never going to share Jesus unless you're fully persuaded. And so I pray that more and more, God would persuade you. We need it, right? Maybe you would admit, like, you know, I've been kind of riding the fence. I'm not really sure. Let me ask you this. What's it going to take to make you believe? Well, it would take a miracle. No, it won't. No, it won't. Miracles don't lead to faith. Well, it would take the... No, it won't. It's a decision that you make in your heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And there's nothing else out there for you, folks. It's like outer space, man. You can search for life, but you ain't going to find it. That's not an astronomical commentary. You get what I'm saying, right? You can search for life out there. You ain't going to find it. And today, maybe someone needs to stop looking out there because it's right here in front of you. And until you stop being lukewarm and give yourself to Christ, you're just going to live in that nasty, lukewarm place of, well, I'm not really in, I'm not really out, I'm not really sure, I'm not really unsure, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Well, figure it out so you can start doing something. You just live in that lukewarm middle ground that Jesus said us, not even worth drinking lukewarm water. I'll spit you out of my mouth. If you're going to be in, gang, be all in. If you're going to be out, be all out. And we don't want you to be out. 
Maybe today's the day you say, you know what? I'm tired of playing games with Jesus. I'm just going to be sold out. What would it look like if every person in this room lived sold out for the Lord and persuaded and used that to persuade other people? Washington, D.C. is not the answer, folks, for Corinth. Better leadership isn't the answer for Corinth. It's the gospel to turn the world upside down. And you have it. Stop holding it in. Amen, church?